Hi, this is Jeanette Creamore, or you may know me as JC. Welcome to Laugh, Learn, Lead, a podcast show that helps project sponsors, project managers, and their teams shape their project success stories. I'll be sharing interviews that bring a different perspective to what project success looks and feels like, as well as unpacking our conversations to provide insights and practical tips. Stay tuned and enjoy. Hi, listeners. In this episode, I catch up with Sam Higgins, who has two decades of tactical and strategic experience in ICT, in diverse industries such as transport, financial services, and education. Through his various roles as a leading ICT industry analyst, program consultant, and architect, Sam obtained extensive experience in digital transformation, data science, as a service cloud computing, enterprise architecture, enterprise applications, business intelligence, along with the management and governance practices associated with ICT planning, strategic sourcing and portfolio management. In 2007, he was commissioned to lead the major revision of Queensland Government ICT planning methodology and the development of Queensland Government Enterprise Architecture Framework. Sam is a regular and respected facilitator, panellist and speaker at both local and international conferences. He is widely published in industry journals and is regularly sought by the ICT industry press for his expert opinion. Today we're going to talk about his journey starting as a second generation IT and what excites him about technology. Welcome Sam, it's great to have you here today. Um, I first met you at Queensland Transport Main Roads and along my career I've definitely tapped back into your expertise and, uh, and the way that you solve problems but can you help others understand a little bit about your career journey and the role that you now play at IBRS? I can. Thanks, Jeanette. And I'm excited to be here. It's, it's really great. As you say, we've crossed paths many times, colleagues, uh, client um, client and provider, uh, all those sorts of things. So, uh, so you're right, we, we've, we've shared a few interesting, uh, interesting times. So I always like to uh, admit when I get asked, you know, what, a bit about myself and my career journey is that I'm second generation IT. So uh, my father was a COBOL programmer. And I hate to say it, but I started my career as a COBOL programmer in the Northern Territory Computing Division, or NCOM, as it was called, um, you know, back in the back in the eighties and nineties. Um, and when I joined NCOM, which was a, a branch of the Department of um, Corporate and Information Services, as I think it's still known up there, uh, Dad was actually the head of Applications Development. Um, Darwin being a small town, you know, so uh, so that was that was pretty funny. So not only did I follow my dad's career footsteps, uh, I briefly worked for him, um, and I'm glad it was only briefly. So, <laughs> so yeah, so um, so my career started in software development, and and I think I was lucky in that I did a traditional business degree. So actually did a uh, bachelor of Business with what is now Charles Darwin University, used to be called the Northern Territory University back then, and um, majored in information systems. And it was interesting, in those days, there were no IT degrees. You either did a Bachelor of Business Information Systems or did Bachelor of Science Computing. And the difference was um, my friends in, in science doing computing got to wear white coats because they were doing science degrees. I don't know why, because you said they were <laughs> splashed on by any chemicals from the computer, but... There you go. Fun fact, I'm actually a sugarcane juice chemist and I've worn a white lab coat, so there you go. 
<laughs> you, go, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I used to think it was hilarious. You'd see these students, you can imagine, right, Got you know, girls and, and guys wandering around the campus in Darwin in 34-degree heat, 90% humidity in white coats, just like just crazy. But anyway, that's, um, that's social physics for you, the things that people do to, to don the uniform. But um, the other thing that I did that was a bit different um, and I, and I see much more of it now, but I actually did a minor in marketing and the Northern Territory University at the time didn't offer that. I had to get permission from the Dean of Business to combine the two marketing units that they offered at the university with um, some correspondence courses in those days um, from Edith Cowan University. So I actually have a, a, de- a bespoke degree that I, uh, I was awarded in 1991. So there you go, even back then, if you... You know, if you had the will and the forethought, you could do it. Because I figured that there was something about technology and the need to sell it to people and to be able to explain it to people and to understand, well, what problem is it going to solve that I felt having those marketing skills and understanding consumer behaviour particularly. So I did a lot of units in consumer behaviour and and biopsychology in in the marketing units around Uh, how, how that played into things. So. Well, that helps me understand now why you're so good in a room with people, that you can take a problem but do the storytelling to get them to understand what it is they're trying to solve, but then this is how you can go about it. So I didn't know that about you, but that kind of helps me understand how good you are now, mm. why why you're yeah, able no, I, to do that. I, I think it was a bit of, and look, it was more, you know, it was more the fact that I liked marketing initially that I thought this might be a good idea. And obviously the dean at the time must have seen something as well for him to agree to do that as a, one, as a, one-off, a one-off exercise. But it's certainly right, certainly been, been really lucky. I was also lucky during high school. I was part of a leadership program run by the police, uh, non-territory police, uh, computing, uh, sorry, community service division, um, so attached to things like the PCYC, which um, and we actually got to learn things like public speaking. So I learned public speaking skills quite young. So in sort of late high school, um, you know, we, we didn't have in the public system up there, you know, debating competitions and things. It wasn't enough. But um, but we did learn to do that because that's obviously, again, something that police officers have to do. So they would often put, you know, these pimply face school kids through cadet training courses just because that was part of what they had to offer. So it was that was quite fun. So I think that helped as well. And it's interesting. I'm often asked by young architects, enterprise architects, solution architects, um, people that want to move into that that sort of front-end design and strategy work, you know, what are the things they should should go and do? And I often say to them, well, you know, do you know how to publish? Do you know, have you been Toastmasters? You know, go and do something like that. Or NIDA, actually, believe it or not, run a great course called um, uh, Corporate performance i think is the official title and basically they have really senior actors and some of them are quite uh, quite famous actually that run the course and it's a two-day course where they share with you acting skills to to enable you to do that as you said Jeanette, that better storytelling which is really important when you're trying to convince a room particularly the way to convey emotion and to draw emotion out of people um, and so i was lucky enough to do that course when i was um, research director and one of the co-founders of an analyst firm called Longhouse. So, yeah, that's another course I recommend young um, young sort of ambitious folk go and do because it's, um, it's interesting. Lots of that sort of cross, I think, cross-industry stuff 
that that we should do, you know, a little bit of everything. If I reflect on my career, that's certainly something that I've been lucky enough to do. You know, I've done software development. I moved into uh, business analyst, lead analyst work, up into systems architecture, ultimately enterprise architecture and strategy. But along the way, had the opportunity to do things like work alongside, you know, um, professionals like yourself who taught me really good project management skills, you know, and I went and did Prince 2 certification, you know, as an architect, even though I didn't need it every day. I went and did ITIL training, so I understood the pain of operations. Um, and you might recall, Jeanette, when you and I were at Transport, I um, did a stint for, it was about six months, um, relieving for the head of infrastructure, so the assistant director for infrastructure in the department, just, again, just to expose myself to the, to the difference, um, the different situations and sort of day-to-day -day challenges that you find across what is a pretty broad discipline in technology. And there's a lot, of, a lot of different tribes that have very different experiences and it's very easy just to stick to your own, to your own tribe and never understand how the other half lives. So, again, that, I've been very lucky in that respect. So when you finished your study, did you jump straight into government or how did you get... I did, yeah. So I, so I was actually, the last year of my study, I was actually lucky enough to pick up a, a cadetship with a company called Computer Support and Maintenance, very fancy name, <laughs> which was a Darwin um, systems integrator and technology reseller. So back in those days, we used to sell Windows 311 on 286s um, and a bit of Lotus Notes and printers and all sorts of fun stuff. I remember, I remember we had a showcase when, Microsoft Encarta came out and it was like eight CDs or something you had to load up onto, onto the machine. So for those who remember those before oh Wikipedia, you know, oh. the world's knowledge on the world's knowledge on six CDs. You know, yeah. Oh, funny. So yeah. So again, that I think that helped with the selling part because it was actually a sales and support graduate trainee. So I did that for a year, finished my degree, and then took a graduate traineeship with. The Northern Territory Government, which is where I started at Encom, and yeah, my first my first work there was was in software development, so COBOL, SAS programming on the mainframe. Moved into data management, so I actually spent a bit of time as a DBA, DB2, mm -hmm. IBM DBA, um, before learning um, client server software development. So we were using 4GL software, so case tools, computer aided software engineering tools that generated. COBOL, um, C, and ultimately when you and I were working together, Jeanette, at, at Transport, uh, Queensland Transport used the same case tool that I'd learned way back then in the 90s, early 90s, um, to generate Java um, and C-sharp code as well. So um, it was that was useful because, again, it was a, a experience of lots of different software languages and lots of different software architectures very early in my career, which I think set me up quite well. So that was sort of the, the early part, I guess. And then the thing that I remembered, you know, your call to fame or whatever you want to call in government, but I still recall on it now and use it from time to time, is you were a co-author of the um, government ICT planning framework and how um, government and organisations should use technology to enable their success. And you co-authored that with a group of archi um, architects. That's right. Yeah, you're right. The um, so that was a really interesting experience. I had just 
um, I'd just become the system architect for Queensland governments, and particularly Queensland Transport's um, Transport and Integrated Licensing System or Trails. And we had um, a bunch of guys come in from Unisys to provide our CIO at the time with a strategic plan for the organisation. And um, I don't know if you know Steve Waits and Jeanette, but Steve um, was one of those consultants. And again, I was lucky enough to sort of come under his wing during that process. And, you know, he'd been a consultant for many years. And through that experience, I suppose, I saw for the first time the ability to link business strategy and strategic planning all the way through to technology delivery. And it was the first time I'd been involved in a strategic planning process of that scale. And based on the architecture work I'd been doing, you know, I, I saw there was a real opportunity to do that well. And I think I was lucky, you know, our CIO at the time, Paul Summergreen, put myself, uh, Alan Chapman, who's now the CIO at uh, TAFE Queensland, and Sean Travers, who is one of the senior architects at Queensland Health still to this day, um, in a team. So, you know, Alan being a, um, an ex-academic and real innovator in the technology space, Sean being a, an ex-system um, program on the mainframe and a real guru in infrastructure and um, that type of technology. And then myself from an application perspective formed a team and Paul set us the challenge of basically working with all of the divisions um, across Queensland Transport, so one of the largest government departments in Queensland government at the time, and also our branch. You'll recall Jeanette was one of the largest IT shops in Queensland government. We had 400-plus staff and turned over $100 million, um, and that was around the year 2000. So, And we supported 7,500 public servants um, across transport and main roads as, as they were two departments then, they're now one again at the time. And so understanding what all their needs were and how as a shared IT organisation, an internal service provider, how we should operate and how we should provide those services was something that needed some real thought. And so Paul set us the challenge of saying, right, oh, well, you know, you guys need to come up with a process that's consistent, repeatable across those divisions um, and you need to be able to sell it and you can't call it enterprise architecture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yes, I remember yeah. that. Architecture by stealth, we used to call it. You know, yeah, so that was that was how that came about. So, yeah, you're right. So um, working with support from a number of different people, you know, we used, we used some really good stuff from the industry analysts community, so both Metagroup at the time, which, which became part of Gartner and Gartner themselves, along with... Um, input from Peter Grant, who um, had at one time been the CIO at Transport, but was also a whole government CIO in Queensland, um, as well as spending some time at Microsoft. So his experience was invaluable. And reviewing all sorts of methodologies, you know, the US federal government had a thing called the, the Office of Management Budget at the time, um, and they had a whole capital planning methodology. So they had a, a process for how they dealt with the distribution of capital investment in technology across federal government agencies in the US. Um, the UK government had some stuff, but no one had really pulled it together in an end-to-end -end methodology that was suitable for government, you know. Um, mm, that's right. Until, until we did that in, in transport. That was really the first time it had been formalised, I think, be a fair, fair assessment of what we achieved.
And do you know it's still relevant? If you, like I've still mm. got, I've still got the binded paper copy that's got all my scribbles and <laughs> ticket notes over it. And from time to time, I'll still pick it up and I go, this is still so relevant. And yet yeah. organisations still don't do it well. They still no, don't no, do don't. that whole. Anyway, well, we'll park that one because we're not going to deep dive yeah. into that just a moment. That's I just right. want well, to. That could be a whole other. That could be a whole other. <laughs> Yeah, actually, just and on that, you know, I don't know if you you know, but it's still it's been slightly rebranded. But the methodology got picked up by the Queensland Government Chief Information Office. I assisted Alan when he was the whole of government CIO with making it more broadly applicable across agencies and working with um, Equine Lowe and Rob Winchester and uh, Andrew Hooth were, were three of the key authors. Peggy Hebblethwaite was another. In fact, th- those names are all still in some of the materials. Um, you know, and I do not acknowledge their their hard work. These things are never one one person; it's always a team. Um, but that material is still there, so th- it's been adjusted slightly to account for digitisation and, and changes around IT as a service delivery and increases in the role of services within within architecture. But that material is all still used, and the Queensland government still use it today to do all of their whole government planning. So something something I, I certainly reflect on with some pride. Mm. Now, I know when you left government, it was a um, bit of a sad day for us in uh, in transport, but you went on to bigger things um, in business aspect, I think, was your first leap, or was it Longhouse? No, it was, I actually went to Forrester Research. So I had this epiphany oh, looking right. at all the CIOs, yeah. yeah, looking at all the CIOs on you around town, I thought, oh, all these people look like they're going to drop dead from heart attacks. I'm yeah. not sure I want them. literally my that that was my litmus test um and uh, and i spoke particularly at length to uh, Gillian carmody who was at the time the head of strategy for brisbane city council and is now the cio of perpetual and uh and i actually do a bit of work with with Gillian and with perpetual so um, it's been nice to be working with her again but she said look you need to make a decision you know you either need to to take that leap to a cio or you need to do something different and it was a, a colleague of mine, Tracy Lucock, who said to me in a conversation, Sam, you, you're one of these people that just likes to help solve problems um, that people have with technology. And, and so really your role is an advisory role. You, you might not be the right person to ever sit in a CIO role, but what you might be is you might be the person to sit at the right or left hand of the CIO and, and help them through those tough decisions. Um, so you see, because you're able to unpack those problem spaces better than most. Absolutely. And thought, oh. Yeah, so when I thought about that in terms of career, I um, I'd spoke to Peter Grant, who was at Gartner at the time, and a couple other people and decided maybe a stint as an industry analyst would be a good, a good step. So that was my first leap from government. I went from there to Forrester Research but didn't last long at Forrester, mainly because Forrester's commitment to Australia at the time was limited. They've, they've since increased that. They've done very well. They acquired a company called Springboard Research, um, I think three or four years ago, and that certainly helped them in the Asia-Pacific region. But at the time, they just weren't really ready to make the investment. So um, I opted to, to actually do a startup. So I, I left Forrester, uh, joined another forester colleague of mine, Peter Carr, and we formed Longhouse, which ran for, uh, I was with the firm, 
work, actively working in the firm for, for the first four years and then it, it ran for another uh, two years after that before, sadly, as often happens with startups, Jeanette, they mm-hmm. don't all work out. And so despite um, despite being the first analyst firm in Australia to, to do any research on infrastructure as a service and cloud computing, um, the, the company just really... I think it was a little ahead of its time. You know, we we launched oh, Crikey back in 2000 and I want to say 2007 or something around then, uh, an online internet television channel called Longhouse TV and we had a studio in Burrow and Hills and all of that sort of stuff. And it, um, I think we were just to sort of deliver research, industry research uh, in a different way, much like you're doing with the, with the podcast, you know, what's yeah. the right format for people to consume information. Um, I think we were just a little ahead of our time and so sadly, sadly Longhouse didn't survive. But um, but my four years at Longhouse and my, my my 12 months with Forrester was great and I really enjoyed being an industry analyst. You know, it, it's a privilege that few people probably get in their career to actually be able to research things, to do a lot of thinking, to be a real advisor. Um, you know, I mean, I spoke to, um, you know, CEOs of multinational companies. I got to travel the world um, and see and hear all sorts of things way, way, way ahead of any announcements to the market. And so it really is that sort of you do become the person that, that climbs the tree in the forest with the binoculars and gets to look out, you know, and point people in the right direction. And um, that's great. On the flip side... It can become a real echo chamber, and and the air can get a bit thin. Um, and there's, you know, and I remember when tr- Twitter arrived on the scene. You know, I, I was reflecting one day that there just seemed to be a lot of journalists and analysts of various flavours, um, pundits, if you like, uh, all patting themselves on the back and reinforcing their own messages. And I thought, I don't know if this is such a good place to be at the moment. And so that was part of the reason. Um, that I stepped out of Longhouse and went, as you said, to business aspect to do some end user consulting again. I, I felt like I needed to talk, stop telling people what to do and actually go and do some doing of what I was telling um, just to make sure that I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't drinking my own Kool-Aid. <laughs> but you the, did... point that, the point that I'd become irrelevant. So, yeah, so no, I, I took, a, took a break almost, if you like, a break from advisory to go consulting. <laughs> <laughs> but you did rescue me at Department of Education with the CIO because I used one of your papers for CRMs um, at the time, the Longhouse. Yes, that's right. And yeah. I said, Sam, can yeah. you come and present your paper to the CIO because he's struggling to understand um, the relevance of CRM and using technology to fix a problem that's not about their customer. And, yeah, you were brilliant. So thank you for writing that paper because it rescued me. No, that's right. No dramas at all. And it's, it's funny too because some of those things, you know, I, I sometimes find myself dragging some of that material back up and that's what I mean by industry analysts. Some people can can look at the research of Gartner and Forrester and, you know, IBRS and uh, Telsite. You know, there's a whole bunch of brands in the Australian market that I could rattle off um, and, and do take it with some cynicism and scepticism and I think that's fair. On the flip side, a lot of the advice is quite longitudinal. You know, it stays relevant for quite a long time because analysts are trying to clear a path through the, you know, through the sort of fear, uncertainty and doubt and 
hype and marketing and all of that sort of stuff to help people, you know, if, if, if we think about projects and the stuff we'll talk about shortly, to help people sort of plot a path through for projects. And so, you know, often that research remains quite uh, quite timely, quite relevant for a long time. You know, I've certainly dragged some of those papers out. Um, you know, data management's a classic. In that paper that you you mentioned, um, um, I can almost see it. Uh, one of the things we talked about is the importance of making sure that there are were rules about how you populated customer details and accounts and addresses. Mm-hmm. You'll remember that was a big oh, yes. um, discussion. You know, where should we get the, where should we source addresses from? You know, yeah. and then the, the challenge for the international um, student section. I can't remember their form. Yeah, it was called. yes, and their and their ability to get international addresses, which is even harder. So that whole data management thing is still a problem today. You know, I still talk to clients who have CRM systems and, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. You know, put a, put a bit of artificial intelligence on top and, you know, now you've got now you've got a robot with a psychosis, you know. It's not been good. Oh, you cracked me up. Um, so, yeah, and then we re, re oh, you came and rescued me again. So if people are listening to this, if there's one person that you can trust and actually bring some logic and sense to a project problem with Sam and he's been my go-to person. So when you're at Business Aspect, um, I rang you and said, come and help me at a university. Same Mm. thing, I needed you to be able to tell a story about strategy first, delivery second. Um, And then I also, I think at the National Regulator, I got Business Aspect down here in Victoria to help with the um, business and information architecture because we were taking over, um, you know, the Australian re- you know, regulation responsibilities and trying to get data from each of the states and and to combine it. I went, wait, 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 stop. You actually need some information architecture first because otherwise we're going to get, like you said, just shit data in and shit data out. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, you- and look, it's, that, that's a really interesting example at Texa one because when I remember when you came to me with that problem, and you and I spoke, in the end, one of the things that we did um, was went back to first principles. And I wrote an article, oh, geez, if I can find it, Jeanette, I'll send it to you. Thanks. Because uh, it was published on ZDNet or IT News or one of those. And I talked about the fact that, um, and I use this analogy, for 400 years in the Middle Ages, after the fall of the Roman Empire, nobody in mainland Europe actually knew how to produce concrete. Uh-huh. Right, little known fact. Did you know that? 400 no. years. No. Four, four centuries, no one in mainland Europe, right, knew how to build anything anywhere near um, as effectively as the Romans. And that's why Middle Age ruins are obviously in far worse condition than, you know, um, Roman or Greek ruins. And I, I felt early in the 2000s that a similar thing was happening with IT degrees and the graduates that I was meeting and the people, projects that I was encountering because it felt like somewhere on the journey of the IT industry, projects and uh, and project resources had all forgotten how to do basic things like information management, data architecture, data modelling, business analysis, structured analysis, you know, in in the sort of 
in the boom of the internet and e-commerce and everything that happened in that first 10 years of this century, people sort of forgot forgot how to do certain basic things that were a core part of what you and I would call, you know, good project practice when it comes to technology, you know. Mm. Um, dress it up in extreme programming, agile methodologies, doesn't matter. Um, you know, if, if you are not good at translating a requirement into a data structure in an effective way that that data structure can be maintained and understood, you're going to have problems. And that's... Um, and that was a good example of that because you had some really smart people at Texa. Oh, absolutely. Academics yeah. that knew their stuff and, and the commission yep. was so incredibly smart. But, yep. did but we didn't have anyone that had said to them, well, hang on, let's, let's put together a model that, that, you know, where we can take the 50 or 60 different views of this information and map it to something. And it seems yep. pretty simple in hindsight, but that's, a, that's an example of that. You know, uh, and again, I, I thank my early career for that. And I, and I, again, I often point when I'm asked to mentor a, an up or coming, um, you know, technologist or strategist, I'll often ask them those questions. You know, have you ever done, have you ever been a BA? You know, have you ever done requirement solicitation? Um, have you run workshops? Do you have those skills? You know, do you know how to do a data model? Um, you know, do you know how to construct, you know, a wireframe? Can you, draw a conceptual picture of a system that has multiple uh, concerns on it, you know, mm. information, process, people, technology, you know, one of those sort of basic basic models. And I'm always, or less surprised now, but I would, in the past was always surprised at, at the, the, the number of those things that people said they'd never been exposed to. Um, and they're around. You can you can do those courses, and certainly online now you can get access to all sorts of great great courses. You don't have to go anywhere to get it. You can get it from all of those sorts of new uh, neo and digital universities. But unless you pointed to them, you can miss some of those fundamentals. And it's like asking someone to build a castle who doesn't know how to make concrete. Wow! You know? I get the they story. Might get there. You might get there, but it won't last. Mm. You know, it'll look okay, but it won't last. And so that was sort of the analogy in the in the piece that I wrote a few years ago. Uh, I yeah. still think there's an element of that. Yeah. And just to let you know, um, I interviewed Mike Stapleton um, a couple of episodes ago, who's the Deputy Director General of Transport, and he was telling me that they're only so one of the projects that I rescued, one of the things I first did was the services booking system. I went to the architecture mm. group and I said, please unpack this system for me because I don't think we've got the right data in the right place. And yeah. he was and he was telling me that after we rescued that project, they're only just replacing it now 15 years later. So it stood its time for 15 yeah. years because we went back and made sure the data was scalable, yeah. reliable and relevant. So, yep. so thank you yeah. for, for that, another example. But, yeah, just to... To reinforce what you're saying, just get some basics right, guys. So, so what are you doing now at IBRS? What's how do you fill your day? So, so IBRS is it actually stands for Intelligent Business Research Services, which is um, you know, but IBRS sounds much nicer. So, IBRS actually was started by a guy called Nick Bowman. Nick was ex Gartner, and when Gartner bought Meta Group um, about 15 years ago, now I think. Yeah, almost 15 years ago. Um, 
the what happened was something really interesting in the Australian market was a whole stack of the analysts that were at Meta Group at the time um, broke away and a, and a bunch of small analyst firms started up. And Longhouse, while it wasn't a wasn't directly a function of the Meta Group thing, because both Peter and I were from Forrester, um, we entered the market at this at, at a time when when I think there was a recognition that that Gartner and to a lesser degree Forrester um, were a bit like the big Hollywood blockbusters um, of the of the research game, right? They produced these really fascinating articles and deep research from North America and globally, and you know they were they were right there in Silicon Valley, you know, reporting on everything that was going on. But but if you were here and you know and you again, Jeanette, you and I have done this. If you if you're a project manager trying to find a solution to a problem in Australia. The number of times that you get a Gartner Magic Quadrant and go to the list and contact those companies and say, right, well, you know, I, I want to get the best CRM in class, for example, at the time, and you go to Gartner and give you a Magic Quadrant, you go, right, I'm going to up a, up a right quadrant, I'm going to pick those four. Maybe three or four of them 15 years ago would say, well, we've got no presence in Australia, no partners and no ability to support you. So suddenly you were left with one. And it might not be the best one and it might not be the ideal one. And so then, you know, in particularly in government procurement, people would say, well, that's not good enough. You have to go looking. So so there's this whole challenge of, well, what about the local firms and what about the local startups? And despite the rhetoric that suggests we don't have any of that here in Australia, which, which I would disagree with, um, almost inevitably, if you looked hard enough, there was there was an Australian alternative or an Asian alternative from New Zealand or Singapore or somewhere like that. And so, IBRS, um, uh, Hydrosite was another firm that that was at the time it, it got gobbled up by Springboard Research, which was another one out of Singapore. Were all these what I call last mile research firms? So they were organisations that were small groups of analysts, so often, you know, 10 to 15 industry analysts uh, who'd been analysts before, sometimes ex-journalists, a lot of industry analysts are ex-journalists, um, who were able to report on that last mile and give people advice around, well, if I pick this international product, what I actually need to know is then who the partners and service providers, who's going to implement this for me, which systems integrators actually have skills to do it, because there's no point pouring a million dollars, $5 million, $10 million into a package of software or solution, be it cloud or anything else, that I then have no support for locally, you know. Oh. And, and, and we are, you know, we are an island nation, um, both physically and to, some, to a large degree, in my view, in time. And what, what I mean by that is we're awake and everybody else of significance is asleep, mm. you know, or they're waking up very late. Mm. You know, so you might be able to bring India online at, you know, midday and Singapore at, you know, similar sort of time frame. And, uh, but, you know, you're sort of burning the midnight oil if you want to pick up South Africa and, you know, you're speaking to people in their pyjamas in the UK. So that that's a real challenge. And so these analyst firms like IBRS started to build up a reputation for doing that last mile advisory. So supporting smaller organisations that couldn't necessarily afford the the gardeners of the world, um, but also for those that had gardener and wanted more specific advice. There's this um, there's this whole other range of analyst firms, and not and not everyone's aware that that's that that exists, and that there is other opinions besides gardeners. You know, 
um, that exists around the world. You know, mm. um, there's some, you know, there's some really good ones that have grown up. Like I say, Longhouse didn't survive, you know, as an example, but I think we pushed the envelope on how our operating model and delivery model worked, you know, with video and things like that mm. um, 10 years ago. But IBRS has, has stood the test of time, so they have a really good back catalogue. And so I knew Nick from those days, you know, when um, and when you're a small firm, you know, or a bunch of small firms competing with a Gartner or, or someone like that, then you tend to uh, collaborate. And it used to be funny, you'd go to an industry analyst briefing. So let's say IBM wanted to get all the analysts together for Australia, you know. The, I remember when Glenn Boron was the managing director and we'd all get together and sit around and Glenn would talk to us about, you know, the IBM strategy for the year and the, the performance of the Australian business and all of that good stuff. Um, and often what would happen was there'd be, you know, Glenn would spend an hour with the Gartner analysts and then he'd spend an hour with the with Forrester and then he'd spend an hour with someone else. And then he'd spend an hour with with um, what was colloquially referred to as the small analysts. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so we'd all get lumped in the same room, right? So there'd be myself from Longhouse and then there'd be James Turner from IBRS and there might be, um, you know, uh, we might have Michael, um, uh, sorry, John Brand or Michael Warrillow from Hydrocyte in the room. So, so you kind of had to collaborate a little bit because it wasn't like you could ask your question of Glenn in that room and not expect two other analysts, if they thought it was a good question and a good answer, to not write it down and report mm. on it, you know, or use it for their own research. And so you sort of, it was a funny a funny time in the industry because we, we sort of ended up with this funny sort of equilibrium where just naturally we all sort of played to our strengths. And so it was not uncommon for us to find that we, we had, you know, overlapping clients and um, that we were competing for the same business and, and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time too, it was very, very friendly because it was very much us against the big guys. Mm. And so when uh, when I decided to leave business aspect um, after we sold the firm to Data3, uh, I reached out to Nick because I just thought, oh, look, you know, uh, uh, I'd been asked by Gillian Carmody here at Perpetual to, to give her a hand um, and I agreed to do that sort of on, a, on an ongoing basis. But with the rest of the time I had available, I, I wanted to... I wanted to get back into that advisory work. And so um, Nick's business model for us as analysts was very flexible and so that was part of the reason why I joined them. And, and the deep research and, and I knew the team there. You know, Dr Joe Sweeney um, is an excellent analyst. James Turner, who's taken a sabbatical, one of the best security analysts in the country, you know, uh, in, the local, in the local community. So that, that was sort of what drew me to, to IBRS. Mm. Um, when I publish this episode, I'll make sure that I'll include your IBRS um, links so people can follow up and understand a little bit more about what you're doing there and some um, how you can help them. Um, yeah, yeah. No, look, I think, you know, and we, we target those sort of, you know, um, small to mid-market. So, you know, for, for example, we don't tend to find that the big end of town, the NABs and ANZs and people like that, um, tend not to, to use an IBRS, but, you know, smaller sort of anything from, you know, 100 to, you know, 2,000 people organisations seem to, to find us a good fit. Um, and our research model means that if you do have a, 
an IBRS relationship, everyone in the organisation gets access to the written research. So it's not a, you know, Jeanette just gets it and only Jeanette can download it. And, you know, we all know that Jeanette's going to share it with a couple of people, but generally speaking, you know, you have to act as a gatekeeper. The, the, most of the local analysts have a very open model um, because they're, you know, we one don't that they don't have the volume. We don't have a volume of people. You know, we're a, we're a team of ten, um, ten analysts, give or take, depending on people coming and going. Um, and so, you know, we want to maximise the reach of our research. Um, but the advisory work then is is very is very specific. It's normally one or two people in the organisation, the CIO or the head of architecture or strategy or project managers. A lot we so with IBRS, I think I would speak to more project managers as an analyst than I would um, when I was at, at Forrester and certainly as a consultant. You, you mm. know, project managers are there, but, but project managers are often the ones that are at the point end, right? They've got to make decisions. Right. Yeah. They've, they've got a set of requirements. They've got architects. They've got, they've got to navigate through something and they've got to be shown, they've got to be able to show that they've followed a process or given due process to certain things. And so part of that is often reaching out to analyst firms and saying, look, I spoke to, you know, I spoke to Sam Higgins at IBRS about this problem space and, mm -hmm. you know, and he told me, you know, I've, indeed I've got an inquiry right now today for a, um, for an organisation in South Australia. Um, they're in the utility space and you, you'll laugh at this, Jeanette. Guess what they want? They want to know who they should talk to around electronic timesheeting. Oh, you're <laughs> No, no, I'm not kidding. So there's a, there's a perennial problem up there with CRM project management tools, portfolio management tools, um, you know, common common question. We did wow. electronic time. So, yeah. So, that, so and that's a project manager looking looking for a list of vendors they can send an RFI to. Jeez, so, so. I hope they're solving the right problem. Well, that's, that's <laughs> certainly where I'm going to start. My first question is I need 30 minutes of your time to understand your problem before we assume that that's what you actually need. Technology for me was a scary thing when I first came into the, the space, but I've had people like you and a few others that have helped me understand it and, and it's not scary. But what still excites you about it today? You've been along the path for a long time, but what is it that still gets you up in the morning? I, I was a slow reader when I was young. It took me a long time to learn to read. I, I suffered a bit of dyslexia when I was very young. Um, actually spent, uh, it's funny, the things the things that we do in the education system. So in the 70s, it, they thought it was a good idea to take kids who were dyslexic but obviously not, um, but obviously had some sort of intelligence. So, you know, they did a bunch of testing. This is in New South Wales in the 70s. Um, take us out of the school we're in and stick us all together in another school. Oh, <laughs> For yeah. a semester, and try and and try and teach the dyslexia out of us. So you can imagine how that went. It was pretty pretty fun. Yeah. But uh, so I so I learned to read quite late, and I'll always be grateful to um, to the, the librarians at Nightcliff High School in Darwin. Bit of a shout out to Nightcliff High Middle School um, that uh, gave me lots of different genres, and I fell in love with science fiction. And so the thing, the funny thing that excites me about technology is as a kid learning to read in high school and then having found the joy in reading, particularly science fiction, and imagining all of these amazing things that could potentially happen in the future and envisaging this amazing future, um, 
I'm astounded how often those things have come true in my lifetime. And that's what excites me because so many books that I've read now have manifested in some way, shape or form, some elements or the promise of those things is, you know, you can see it coming. Um, Even if it doesn't occur in our lifetime, you can see the, the, the foundation of it. And I don't know whether it's just sort of, are becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, you get all these people that science fiction writers often talk to academics and do their own research and, um, you know, and it's called science fiction because it's supposed to be fictional based on current or potential science. That's the the sort of basis of the genre. Um, Although, you know, space operas are probably, you know, a pretty pretty long bow in that respect. But, um, you know, that's the thing. For, For me, believe it or not, that's actually the thing that excites me. The thing that excites me is that keeps me excited is the fact that, you know, there's a little boy inside me who imagined all of these amazing things that um, technology could do to make amazing things happen for people. And, and I see it every day. And because I suppose I was in technology, my father was in technology. I I, I saw it very early, but but now just amazes me. Mm, that I had never really thought of it that way. That, and when I think about some books that I've read, it is, yeah, there is. Like, who would think that? What? Where are you? You're in Sydney. I'm here in Melbourne. Yep. Um, we did, you know, a piece of string, a couple of thousand kilometres long. We don't need that anymore. You know, yep. we've got this. Right. Just turn a button and it works. So yeah, no, good, yeah. good, good <laughs> reflection. Two, two really two really interesting examples there. So there was a manuscript, a Jules Verne manuscript that was uncovered, oh, I want to say, let's say 15 years ago now, in a safe, and it described in great detail a communication mechanism that when you read the transcript, you read you read this draft of Jules Verne, you can only in in a you know ha- having um, having experienced the technology, you read it and immediately say. He's describing facsimile machines. Wow. Right? And the manuscript was, I don't know, 100 and something years old. Um, and then I'm always, I'll always say to people, Arthur C. Clarke's greatest quote is um, eventually technology or something along these lines, that eventually technology becomes so advanced that it is indistinguishable from magic. And Wow. You have to you have to admit for lots of people, and that's I suppose the exciting thing, right? You know, technology at some level is magical because oh. you you can't distinguish it from magic. I mean, try and explain to someone how Wi-Fi works. Try and explain to someone how you can FaceTime your family and see pictures of them. You know, my eleven-month-old daughter gets to FaceTime with her nana, and as a result, when nana turns up at the house she almost explodes with joy because she already has an association with Nana and Nanny and she's constantly seeing a face. And, and, and that's very different than when I grew up. I grew up and literally lived in the same suburb as my grandparents, you know, and I would see them regularly and often and I have a, a, deep, um, a deep and fond memory of my grandparents for that reason. My daughter, I hope, will have the same fond memories but she will have, I will have been enabled by something that, you know, that my grandparents, who who have obviously passed, would think is magical. <laughs> you know, they, they could only describe it as magic. And I, I'm living that at the moment. I've got a four-month-old granddaughter and 
and we FaceTime every day. Yeah, it is magical. That's where, we're going, that's where we're going to leave today's conversation. Join us next week when we continue to talk about the key problems facing organisations and what is a good project manager. Thank you for listening and I hope you have a few ideas to take action. I would love for you to rate and review the show. I too need feedback to learn. Cheers for now. Remember, a day without laughter is a day wasted.